Hello and welcome to a brand new two-part classic album series podcast here on Riot Act, the alternative music podcast. I'm Stephen Hill and he's Renfrey Deadman. Hello, Renfrey. How are you? I'm very well. How are you, Steve? I'm all right. Thanks, mate. I'm all right. I hope you, listener, are ready for what is going to be big. Mm. Something big. Mm. Um, go over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Riot Act Podcast, and you can sign up for £5 a month to get two of these each month. Two separate classic album picks, one from myself, one from Renfrey, as well as all of our Rioters reviews where we take a suggestion from one of our patrons and discuss that album that they gave us. You can go over there and check it out, and you'll probably see that part two of this classic album podcast is ready there waiting for you but this first part we're giving away for free because we're nice Mm -hmm. because a this is late sorry about that this is quite late and i will explain to you why this is late in a minute and b just because we're just because we're nice i think really we're just just, guys we're just top blokes just absolutely excellent people Mm. thanks um so it is my pick to kick off 2021 and we are going to be doing a podcast on just one album, a double album, but one album all the same. You're probably going, no, usually you do two albums over the course of these doubles that you do. That really wouldn't have been possible with this. Today, we are going to be talking about the biggest and most significantly important cultural export in the history of popular music, I would say. That's what people say. That's what they say. They call them the Beatles. And we're going to be talking about their self-titled ninth studio album. You might know it as the White Album that was released on the 22nd of November 1968. An album that came out in the aftermath of probably the most famous pop album ever released by anyone ever. An album that was born in the wake of personal tragedy. An album that marked the beginning of the end of a coherent and stable working relationship between the band. And an album of such vast scope, such breadth such ambition that it's hard to try and sum it up 52 years after its release, let alone how it would have been back then. I can't even imagine it. This is going to be quite a ride, let me tell you. It's a puzzle, isn't it? It's a enigma wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a puzzle, wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a, you know, yeah. It is a bit. It is. And I think I want to address that just because, I I mean, the notes that went into this are quite unlike anything amount of notes that i've ever written before on any of these that we've ever done um the white album by the beatles there's probably as much written about this record just this record is there is about maybe 10 of the records that we've already covered on the classic album podcasts combined this is a serious undertaking and I'm sure if you're a fan of the Beatles or you know anything about the Beatles, you're probably going, yeah, you've not picked an easy one to start off with. I mean, I don't think there's any one album of theirs that we could have picked that would have been particularly straightforward, but we've really gone for the bullseye in terms of what can you say about this record? Where can you go? We could have been here for months researching this. It's arguably the hardest. Um, but the the and the most complex but um i think it's also one of the most interesting because of those things that you said there you know it did kind of mark the beginning of the end it's the most experimental it's a record full of contradictions 
Mm-hmm. Um, it has some of the simplest, most stripped back material they ever did, but it also has some of the most experimental, weird avant-garde stuff that they ever did. Um, commercially, it performed in a very, um, in a way that you wouldn't expect a double album to do. I won't spoil yep. that now, but you know, um, it, there, there's lots and lots of contradictions with this record, uh, which makes it a very difficult beast to pin down. But a fascinating one to try to pin down as well so yeah, yeah i think so i mean the beatles just before we get into it the beatles i mean like i say Rimf, i'm not gonna lie comfortably the most daunting classic album we've had to do so far we're looking at a band who have had more words written and spoke about them than any other band in history bar none i don't think mm. that's even really up for debate they are probably i mean i would say they are the single most influential group of musicians in the history of popular culture i've already said that every piece of mythology and rumor and hearsay and factual evidence that could have been found has been wrung dry from that glorious what seven year period between the first and final Beatles albums and you know and as we sit here in 2020 and look at the way that they're talked about and considered within the alternative music spectrum that we, you and I cover mm-hmm. in modern music it weirdly I would say the Beatles are probably the most underrated band in the world at the moment uh it's a weird one isn't it i mean i i off, i often go with the exact opposite of that of that but then i understand where you're coming from um i mean i think you read too much twitter uh and I twitter and twitter do, yeah. isn't the center of the universe um but um uh, I, it kind of depends where you look doesn't it because if you look in certain sectors they're probably the most overrated band of uh, the mm. 20th century but if well, you look just at just other an sectors, interesting not so just much. an interesting like little uh, aside i mean there is this kind of young person's backlash against the beatles i think mm. and uh, you know i've read things i've mentioned it before where people who are kind of 21 22 think they're the first people that have sort of backlashed against the beatles the beatles actually had 1.7 billion streams on spotify in 2019 and 60% of those 1. Uh, 7 billion streams were from people under the age of 30 so it's obviously not true that the Beatles are a band who haven't continued to pick up younger fans, even if it's just people who are interested. I think you probably should at least be interested in the idea of trying to approach, you know, the most culturally significant back catalogue in the history of music. But you're right. There are people who have decided not to do that. And I think they make a lot of noise, those people, is what I would say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They make a lot of noise. I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, if you are a fan of modern music, and by modern music, I basically mean any music released in the 20th century or 21st century as well, Mm. um, then you should at least attempt to approach the Beatles and delve in just to see what they did and why they are considered so culturally significant you should at least attempt it at some point if you do that Mm. and then go not for me that's fair enough that's totally fair enough although within their catalogue i'd be really surprised if if one person who loved music couldn't find at least a couple of things that they really really liked because it's so diverse and there's so much going on there but if yeah if you call yourself a music fan and you've not checked out the beatles you're not a music fan end of story yeah, I mean, I think that's fair enough. I think you should at least be interested in in that. And I think there is, you know, there's this backlash that happened, I, I guess, kind of most famously around the first wave of punk. And then, you know, everything from 
Nirvana setting fire to the past in with grunge and the kind of electro and rave scenes, thrash metal, then new metal being like it's all about the future, emo, dubstep, trap, metalcore. All of these little scenes have all kind of had a little pop at the Beatles over the years. And I think people like to think it shows how forward thinking they are, that they're making their own little stamp on the world, kind of their own musical identity hmm. will not be something that is connected to the past. We are, you know that's to be discarded we are the future we are forward thinking but um the i mean I think the irony is that most of those bands from pretty much all of those scenes have even if they aren't aware of it have been influenced by in some way by the recording techniques of the beatles or the musical approach of the beatles or outright you know the songwriting of the beatles and i think there's probably for the most part it, within all of those scenes the very best of those people when you think of someone like chris cornell i mean we'll probably talk about motley Crue and aerosmith and bands like that later as well mm. um you know uh even into new metal and, and emo you know like there's there's plenty of artists like bands like someone like thrice who we're going to be talking about in the second part and the covers that they've done of beatles songs you know the, the very best of those artists do tend to champion their work for the most part yeah i would say yeah. um which sort of says something and you know the ones who don't are either kind of long forgotten knowingly not you know not knowingly have done something which has been inspired by the early work of the beatles or both and i think it is quite important to try and put yourself into the headspace of that time to see what they did that was actually so forward thinking for that time because there are things in this record that to my ears still sound heavy and weird and avant-garde and unusual and brave and disorientating but also there's, like you said, there's all kinds of stuff here that are just great pop songs. And I just don't, I just don't think those things will ever go out of style really, you know? There's a lot of, um, uh, one thing you not mentioned there is there's a lot of folky, acoustic, finger-picky, styly stuff on this record mm. as well. Uh, and that's something which, you know, I don't think ever really goes out of style at all. Um, and yeah, you're right to say, to say, I mean, the avant-garde stuff on this record Yes, it absolutely does still sound avant-garde and weird and odd, um, mm. which is quite a testament considering we're talking about an album which is, oh my God, 52 years 52 old. 52 years old. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and it feels like they did that through not even trying, really, just, just, just experimenting and screwing around. And of course, I think a big part of the reason why, you know, just like any culturally significant um movement or band or thing uh timing played a massive part in it the fact that recording techniques uh, recording techniques alone is the reason why every single person you've ever listened yeah. to is influenced by the beatles mm -hmm. if you've um if you have uh if a band has overdubs on their record they're influenced by the beatles end of mm. like it's, it's as simple as that that's why like people go they are massively influential it's not just musically it's the stuff that george martin uh was doing with the beatles in the studio and the way that they were pushing those techniques and things like that as well one of the main problems i have when you are when considering the beatles is that when you look at some of the most successful artists in music history i usually feel like they are represented in the correct way well i think why i'm so glad that we're doing this album out of all of their records is that I mean, you look at Michael Jackson is a great soul singer, great pop artist, a brilliant entertainer, stunning vocalist. Nirvana are a scrappy, melodic punk rock band who write perfectly simple, aggressive 
outrageously heavy songs. Led Zeppelin are a big stadium rock behemoth, but with a bit more with nuances, subtle parts that people don't straight away talk about. Bob Dylan is a one man troubadour of simple poetic brilliance. The Rolling Stones are a massive blues rock masterclass. I think you can dig into all of those artists' back catalogues and you can find moments where they kind of delight and surprise you in different ways. But in the main, I think the kernel of the idea of what those artists are rings true to the sort of the the idea of what that band are. I don't think that with the Beatles. I think the the kind of the basic impression of these moppy haired 60s pop sensations that write catchy little two and a half minute ditties, these little nuggets of pop rock gold and nothing else is so inaccurate. It is scary. Do you know what I mean? It's so far away. I mean, there are things on this record that don't sound like the Beatles. They don't really sound like any other rock band or pop band at all. And the legacy of what they did is so broad that the people that ignore it or don't want to like them are so clueless just because they think they've heard, you know, I want to hold your hand or yesterday and think, oh, they do that. So that's all they can do. So that is an accurate representation of what this band are. And I just think it's so wrong that it's untrue. And I think, again, why I'm glad that we started with the White Album, because it's it's my favourite record of their, their back catalogue. And I just think it does the most stuff. So if you are one of those people... And I'm wondering, you know, due to the sort of people who listen to our podcast, I'm assuming there might be one or two of them who who just want to hear, you know, who want to hear stuff said about the Beatles in slightly different voices. Then, you know, if you're a cynic and you're sitting there and you hate Breacher or whatever, and you're like, oh, I, I'm going to be unimpressed by this. When I think it should, it, this should be quite easy to kind of crowbar that opinion away from you really with mm. this record if you were to go in with an open mind mm. you know what i mean mm. yeah i've don't ever see that opinion being expressed by um people who actually know what they're talking about uh i.e <laughs> I. professional music critics and people like that i don't actually ever see that i mean i guess uh maybe that is a thing that is expressed um really the whole kind of they're just like mop-topped poppy bands who write nice melodies so and so forth uh is only true up to maybe 1965 or six um Mm. it's probably rubber soul that's kind of the beginning of that change i would say but that's a good couple of records before this isn't it i haven't actually got the discography up in front of me but it's um i think rubber soul was their sixth album something like that's Mm -hmm. fifth so it's Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sergeant Peppers. There we go. We're going to get into all this yeah. in a minute. Yeah. Uh, White Album, if you don't count Magical Mystery Tour, which I'll talk about in a second. So yeah, you know, it had been a little while and um, I'm quite looking forward to getting into all that because I, I just think specifically for maybe the people that we cater to on this podcast, I'm I'm wondering if there is a, a portion of them who subscribe to that idea i don't know but i guess we're about to find out because people will go ah i'm not gonna i'm just not gonna listen to this <laughs> like they did with you too so we'll see anyway um context is unbelievably important on this episode i think um let's not forget that even when you and i were growing up renfrey there was still 
far more ways to discover and find music than there was back in the 1960s um we talk a lot today about how much harder it was when we were growing up to find music as compared to how it is now i mean if you (laughs) people were saying that same stuff who were our age when we were kids because you know this idea that the mid 60s with this kind of swinging 60s like an austin power movie i i mean i from a lot of people that i've spoken to you know my family and people who were around at that time and were old enough to remember the beatles coming through i just don't think that's very accurate for the majority of people that was probably like a couple of thousand people in london yeah who got that kind of london free love hippie swinging 60s exciting thing that's not really true of great britain as a whole what yeah as a whole like just over 20 years after the end of world war Two, i don't think grimsby and rotherham and plymouth <laughs> and <laughs> and you know and, and like farnborough and aldershot and places like that were full of people in union jack suits walking down the street you know with flowers painted on their face saying yeah baby and you no know, of course not dancing I mean, you could say that of history as a whole, you know, the way that history yeah. is written. You know, I remember doing the Tudors and the Stuarts um, massively back in school. But like you're talking about, you know, the royal family. And, and that was like the entire history that we did then. And then it's like, mm. oh, and then there was a great fire, uh, which, you know, <laughs> which which killed a few peasants. Uh, but of course, you know, those few peasants was basically 99.9% of people. Um, not that 99% of people would died in the great fire but you know what i mean um so yeah history is often um often only kind of uh it's, it's very selective is what i'm trying to say mm. it's very very selective there's there's you know there's no doubt that the late 60s in london probably were a very very exciting time yeah i'm sure and were. there's no doubt that there was a cultural movement which we'll talk about going on um at the time as well but most families in that country you know from i'm talking to my my mum and she said you know they didn't have a television until the late 60s and lots of families around the country wouldn't have a television you couldn't just turn on spotify you couldn't turn on mtv you couldn't go down the cd shop you didn't have tfi friday or top of the pops telling you what to listen to you had a radio for the most part so a wireless even a wireless yeah so this idea that you know, everybody was swinging out to all these groovy new sounds and everybody owned a Jimi Hendrix record and we're heading down to Woodstock and stuff, I think is not really representative of the entirety. And I think that's why the Beatles were so important because, you know, it's kind of a lot of people's only outlet into a completely new world. Um, I'm not sure that most people would have been aware of well a a lot of things Mm. without sort of you know the the Beatles opening that door up for them we don't only have to listen to interviews with somebody like Ozzy Osbourne who talks about how you know he was a guy growing up in Aston in Birmingham with no shoes and hearing the Beatles on the radio just completely changed his life and made him want to was in sort of inspired him to to do something like that himself and I think there's probably millions of people who didn't end up being massive rock stars in front of black sabbath who were tapped into a completely new set of ideas and ideals just because they heard this band on the radio and cobbled together enough money to go and 
go out and buy one of their records. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's also probably worth mentioning. I don't know if this helps or hinders uh, what you're saying, but it's. I think it's important for the context anyway. Um, but it is worth remembering as well that there were so few bands like in the 60s in comparison to the amount of people that we have making music and releasing music commercially now there were so few people doing that because so few people had access to record um stuff these recording studios i mean they were immensely 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 expensive and there's no such thing as digital recording yada 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 yada. Mm. there's no there's certainly no such thing as like recording anything from home that is that's a complete and utter pipe dream um i think towards the end of the 60s we might get into this a little bit george harrison did have a four-track recorder which they recorded the escher demos which we might talk about a little Mm -hmm. bit later back at home but he had that because he was fucking rich um and he was he was one of the only people in the world uh to have a setup like that at home um but there were, you know, there were very, very, uh, the, there was very, very, very few bands actually um, making uh, any kind of living or commercial kind of prospects from music whatsoever. Maybe Limited opportunities to do anything, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, mm. that's, just for the context, that's probably worth bearing in mind as well. I don't yeah, know. definitely. And, you know, that context has to be considered that the Beatles were a genuine portal into an entirely different and, for many people, completely outrageous way of thinking and behaving or acting. Or Do you know what I mean? Like, the, the, way, the, the way they spoke about things, the, the way they behaved, the music that they made, particularly when you get into this part of their career, just unlike anything else that... The, even though someone like pink floyd you know might have been making records around that time less people were going to hear that than we're going to hear the beatles so definitely hugely hugely important for the just making odd sounds feel at home within a, a wider contextual framework i think i think there's also something to be said for the fact that um Obviously, there was no way to record songs off of the wireless. Like, we were really, really lucky in a sense. Yeah. Um, you know, when we grew up, um, if we really loved a song on the radio, you know, we could wait and listen to the radio broadcast all day with a tape deck and wait for the song to come on and press record, you know, so that we could capture our, capture that song and, like, listen to it whenever we liked. But I think music was more of an enigma at the time because you couldn't kind of capture it yourself and then re-listen at will it must have been like if you were a fan of the beatles it must have been genuinely exciting when it came on the wireless or the radio or whatever because that would be your only opportunity to hear it um for most people um Mm. And I mean, I remember even like the excitement of seeing, I don't know, Guns N' Roses on television because it was so rare when I was growing up. Um, it was really palatable, um, like seeing, oh, my God, that's that band I absolutely worship. And I imagine it must have been like that times five times ten, because there is no way that you can capture this stuff and replay it whenever you want to. Mm. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Um, Let's look at the, for a bit more context, let's look at music and 
what music was like in 1968. Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Can, King Crimson, Rush, Yes, and Black Sabbath as Earth all formed in 1968. All of those bands got together in 1968. Uh, the Velvet Underground released White Light, White Heat in January. Steppenwolf released their self-titled debut album that month, um, bringing with it the phrase Heavy Metal Thunder on the song Born to be Wild. Fleetwood Mac released their debut self-titled album. Uh, in March, The Mothers of Invention with Frank Zappa released their concept album, We're In It For The Money, which was a, a mocking and satirical kind of take on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and the Beatles in general. So just so you know, the backlash was kind of already on its way, even at this point. Um the self-titled debut album by Credence Clearwater Revival came out in May. We had debut albums from Status Quo, from Deep Purple, uh, In a Gala de Vida by Iron Butterfly came out that year as well. There was albums released from the likes of Frank Sinatra, Elvis, about four James Brown albums. Rolling Stones released Beggar's Banquet. The Who released Magic Bus. Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye all have multiple albums out. T-Rex released his second album. Uh, Dance to Music by Sly and the Family Stone came out. Jimi Hendrix released Electric Ladyland. Otis Redding had a couple of albums out as well, as did Booker T and the MGs. And biggest of all, Renfrey, The Transformed Man by William Shatner was also released that year. <laughs> a girl! With kaleidoscope eyes. So that's probably the best album uh, released in 1968. But Future classic album special to come. Future classic album special uh, and broken record as well. Uh, so... <laughs> Overall, I mean, that is, that's a pretty impressive, considering you were saying, you know, there's not really, there weren't really that many artists around or whatever. And I, I did look and I was like, you know, that's kind of it. There's basically a, a list of about 40 or 50 artists, some of whom release, I mean, like I say, James Brown had four albums out this year. I think we were saying this recently that this was sort of around the time when people would just package a load of songs together and go, that, that's an album, get it out sort of thing. Mm. Um, but for the most part, you know, it's sort of 40 or 50 artists and all of them you go, well, I know the name of all of these pretty much. Yeah. Um, well, I, I suppose to, to reiterate the point that I was talking about earlier, that there was no kind of underground because recording was so expensive. Everything that you've named there, I mean, I'm sure there are a couple of bands or artists or, yeah, or whatever few, that you yeah. that you've missed out there, but that for the most part, that was probably everything because recording was so expensive. You had to you had to put you know everything into marketing what you did, and so those are that that's pretty much everything that was available uh, in a sort of commercial pop sense in 1968. Um, mm. it's interesting that, um, the bands that you named who were about to come, uh, uh, who formed then and were about to go on to do new things, Led Zeppelin, Rush, Black Sabbath, it kind of, I think to provide more context, 1968, 69 was kind of the end of this kind of hippie culture, summer of love thing. And, uh, going into the sort of what became a more sort of drab, dreary 70s era uh or that's what mm. we're led to believe anyway i mean how true that is i don't know because it wasn't there but that's that's sort of the perception that there was this big um lsd culture and hippie culture and free love and so on and so forth um but 
that kind of loss of innocence, certainly with the Beatles. We'll talk about Charles Manson a bit later, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Um, you could argue that this was the beginning of the end of that, the beginning of that loss of innocence, maybe. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And obviously when we get to the wider context of the year, which we will do in a minute, um, I think that probably bears fruit as well. Uh, also, this year was the first... Um, saw the first release of a solo album by a Beatle. Can you guess who it was, Renfrey? Oh, um, uh, I know it's not McCartney. I'm going to go with George Harrison. Correct. It was George Harrison. George Harrison released the album Wonderwall Music. Oh. Noel Gallagher, didn't he? Uh, which is a soundtrack <laughs> album to, <laughs> to the film Wonderwall. Uh, that came out on the 1st of November, closely followed by John and Yoko's Unfinished Music Volume 1, Two Virgins, which came out on the 29th oh, of, of November. Yeah. So those two albums came either side of the release of the White Album, meaning that if you are a fan of the work of the Beatles, you got a total of 168 minutes and three seconds of music from them collectively just in the month of November 1968. Wow. But the mm. the Lennon and Yoko only one's rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> well, you still it still counts. It counts. But, yeah, <laughs> it still counts. Yeah, you can't go for not that one. It's rubbish. I've not heard the George Harrison Wonderwall. No, I've not. No. Um, I, I suppose um, I guessed Harrison because um, uh, even though every single Beatle has a writing credit on the White Album, um, but it's still um, ultimately Lennon and McCartney who have the majority yeah. of the writing credits. So Harrison kind of strikes me as the one who would uh, need that vehicle the most out of the four of them. But um, mm. especially considering the quality of the songs of his songs. On well, yeah, well, I'm not we'll going to do that. any spoilers for Man of the Match, but yeah. anyway. Um, the Beatles that, had... Sounds like you just have. <laughs> I know, I just have to be fair. The Beatles have had, had two of the top five selling singles worldwide that year, although neither of them were from the White Album. Hey Jude was the biggest selling single on the planet and Lady Madonna was the fifth biggest selling single of the planet in 1968 so you know they were a pretty big band that's probably that's probably worth saying for people who don't know as well um uh most of the beatles singles if not all of them uh were not a part of their albums um and that's Mm. kind of how it was done i think with all bands back then i don't really know maybe i i I wouldn't yeah i don't i don't actually know i wouldn't feel confident saying with every band no 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 but certainly um the 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 singles that um came out were all collected on uh past masters past masters volume one and two yeah. mm-hmm. uh which is an incredible collection of beatles songs and it's um you know it's really i remember when i was like first starting to um try and get into the Beatles catalogue like wanting to try and find Hey Jude trying to figure yeah. out which album it was on and it isn't it isn't on an album you know mm. it is just a standalone single and that was kind of the way that they did it so that's worth bearing in mind as well if you're yeah. unaware of that. Uh, away from music it's probably worth pointing out that 1968 was one of the most eventful years in modern history um it's kind of the the 2020 of its era to be honest um on the 4th of april 1968 martin luther king jr was assassinated by james earl ray as he stood outside his balcony in a memphis hotel um nasa's apollo 8 orbited the moon on a mission that december 
Uh, on the verge of securing the Democratic Party nomination for the forthcoming presidential election, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated on the 5th of June outside of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. On the 16th of October 1968, the Olympics that were held in Mexico City um, saw US athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos bow their head and raise their black fisted gloves in solidarity with the Black Panther movement during the Star Spangled Banner after winning the gold and bronze medal respectively for the 200 metre sprint. Both of them were kicked off of the Olympic team in the aftermath, heightening the already ongoing racial tensions. Uh, Richard Nixon won the presidency of the United States on the 5th of November due to what he, he called the silent majority of voters that pushed back against the radical, rebellious, liberal spirit of the time. And possibly most notably of all, the United States now three year involvement in the Vietnam War had basically reached boiling point. Um, there were protests springing up uh, all across the United States in the aftermath uh, of the start of the Battle of the Khe San, which is one of the most controversial and publicly debated conflicts of the Vietnam War, which started on the 21st of January that year and continued through to the 8th of April. Uh, the Tet Offensive launched by President Johnson that year was done to make it seem as if the US was winning the war with quite disastrous consequences for his administration and his country's faith in the government. This led to incredibly famous um, and quite brutal uh, college um, not riots but protests mm. Um, mm -hmm. regarding everything from the treatment of women to the treatment of uh, black and um, African American people throughout the United States and the ongoing war in Vietnam this really was particularly in the US a country reaching sweltering boiling point and much of the music and the art and the culture that came out in 1968 started to bear some sort of reflection of the tensions that were happening in that country at the time. I think that's fair to say without actually being there. 100%. And there was also, uh, you know, there was also a lot of backlash in terms of, you know, the backlash that you still get these days, which is kind of like, well, you're a musician. What the hell do you know about politics kind of thing? You know, where mm. <laughs> this stupid assumption that people are one dimensional and can only do one thing and only think about one thing at a time. Yeah. Uh, you know, <clears throat> um, which just, we will definitely get into oh, on this 100 yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah i think all of those events that you've just outlined there um are kind of what i was talking about with this loss of innocence um and mm. that beginning to happen uh I, yeah and, and and um you know and and this this album uh, you could argue there's there's an argument that this album was kind of responsible for some of those incidences as well i mean i don't really like to word it in that way but you know certain people took um some of the some of the things on this album and uh had very unstable minds and then did awful well, things in as a, a result yeah in, in a world of uncertainty and chaos and extremity mm. the biggest band in the world releasing an album of uncertain chaotic extremity it probably was fairly reflective of the time and on one hand you can go well doesn't this record brilliantly reflect that or did that record 
you know, <laughs> did it reflect it or, or did it create it? Like there's this seesaw where you go, I don't know where yeah, this sits. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a really yeah, yeah. difficult thing to pin it down. And mm. I think, well, I mean, there's there's some quotes from Paul McCartney later on that, uh, that will we'll probably shed a little bit more light on that. But yeah, I think definitely this is, if this record had sounded like anything else that had come, maybe come previous to it. I mean, had they have released Rubber Soul this year, mm. it might have floated. This, we maybe might not have this conversation where we're struggling to go, what an enigma, what a conundrum, what a, you know, what mm. a kind of powder keg this sort of seemed to have lit or was lit by, or, you know what I mean? It's a really yeah. difficult one. Yeah. Um, but I, I think all of those things are really important to sort of, to point out the the general feeling around the world. Definitely. Whilst this was being made. I also think um, in, in contradiction to what I said about people kind of going, oh, well, you're a musician. You shouldn't have an opinion on politics. There's also another load of people who, who were kind of looking to the Beatles for answers in a yeah. weird way, you know, um, uh, because they were such a massive, popular group and then um you know there's there's some discourse about um some talk about people's disappointment that they didn't mm. you know about sort of where they stood on things or or how flimsy their politics were on certain things or how much they changed and so on and so forth um there's probably a balance between all of those things at the end of the day these are just people who have an opinion on something and you should put as much or as little credence into that as that deserves but um i think a lot of people either put too little into their opinions or far 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 too much probably the majority put far 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 too much i would imagine yeah, yeah probably i mean certainly these days my god yeah. um but to give you some idea before we move on and, and talk a bit more specifically about the band themselves to give you some idea of how far back in time we're going on here birthdays people born in 1968 mike Patton, bradley Noel from sublime tricky Sully Erna from Godsmack, Philip Anselmo, Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray, Damon Albarn, James Ihart and Darcy from Smashing Pumpkins, The DOC, Sebastian Back, Celine Dion, Kylie and Jason, Rob Flynn, Tom York, Shaggy, Nate Mendel from The Foo Fighters, Will Smith and LL Cool J. All born in 1968, Renfrey. Wow. Feel old, don't you? Uh, yeah, relatively. Or they <laughs> should feel old, probably. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But yeah, well, that's quite a, an interesting collection of people that were born this year as well. Yeah. So um, we should probably talk about how the Beatles got to this point that they were in uh, to make this record. On the 26th of May, 1967, the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We're not going to go too much into that record because one day there is a very good chance that we will find ourselves here again for one of these podcasts and we will maybe possibly definitely be talking about that it's in some likely. depth there yeah. but needless to say sergeant peppers is one of the most critically acclaimed records in history an album that is basically the benchmark for just about every single thing that has ever come since and from what i understand people were not shy to say that in the immediate uh, aftermath of its yeah. release um it kind of went down as a genuine modern classic within hours of straight coming away out. yeah 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 uh later that year aiming to capitalize on the success of sergeant peppers the beatles made the magical mystery tour movie which is not a great film no. let's be honest you've seen the magical <laughs> mystery tour Renfrey? yes 
bonkers. We probably won't be doing that on classic albums, <laughs> not on classic movie. Um, Although I will say that the soundtrack to Magical Mystery... To, so there was a few of those, you know, there's Yellow Submarine, there's um, Magical yeah. Mystery Tour. You know, it has some really good cuts on it. Like, there are some really good... Um, songs on it and of the kind of in-betweeny soundtracky albums which there are a few uh it might be my favorite of those well i was gonna say the the soundtrack of eps that accompany it came out and in the u.s it was released with some extra songs as a sort of proper album. That's so right, it's a sort yeah. of double double EP in the UK that came out on the 8th of December. And in the US, it came out as a proper album on the 27th of November, 1967. Now, I'm not going to say the US version of the album is something that we would cover here on the Classic Albums podcast because it's not even really a proper album, really. But look at that track listing. Mm. Yeah. It's absolutely killer i mean it's maybe not the very best beatles album there's a little bit of filler in there yes. but if you're releasing that as an album just kind of taped together to curio a few months after releasing what is essentially the biggest album ever um one that went on to sort of change popular culture entirely um magical mystery tour feels seriously underrated to me i mean i think the title track Iron the Walrus, Fall on the Hill. Plus you've got those kind of non-album singles like Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields, mm-hmm. remix versions of Baby, You're a Rich Man, Penny Lane, All You Need Is Love. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's a legit, eight eight legit classics out of 11. Yeah. On the US version of that album. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's a really, really good, um, a really good kind of like odd, odd collection of songs. But I think, mm. yeah, like I say, of those kind of records like Magical Mystery Tour, yellow submarine but it's certainly one of the best of those uh of the kind of yeah the ones that they did as sort of in between a soundtrack records i think i mean i love that album version of the magical mystery tour i probably like it more than the band like it because you actually were really pissed off at their us label adding the songs that people had already owned or could have bought on single they were pretty annoyed about it yes and um just another example of how influential the beatles are years later roadrunner records would co-op this idea by re-releasing re-releasing every single album they ever released six months later with a cover version a remix on a cardboard digipack sleeve <laughs> so this is the first of my many hey metal you got this from the beatles takes that you're going to be hearing <laughs> on this podcast yeah uh yeah um basically i think you know in 1967 they had done two really good albums quote unquote albums mm. Mm. um you know it's one of the most prolific periods of any band ever and heading into the year 1968 sergeant peppers was still number one in the charts in the uk actually left the top spot in february that year having been number one for a total of 27 weeks wow it's quite a long time in it 27 weeks we're getting we're getting into wet 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 territory (laughs) 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 uh uh, and it was actually that month that the band decided to move to the ashram of the Yogi Maharishi in India for a transcendental meditation training course. Um, now, they'd initially gone to his seminar in Bangor, Wales in August of 1967, but their stay there was cut short when they learned about the death of their manager, Brian Epstein, on the 27th of August. And again, um, when going into research this record, I thought, just on the basis of the music of this record alone there is going to be so much to talk about but when i realized it was so close because you know i know the history of the beatles uh, 
as well as anyone who just sort of knows it a bit do you know what i mean mm-hmm. um without going deep 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 into it i've seen i've read books and seen plenty of documentaries and yada 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 but i don't remember and i didn't know that the death of brian epstein was so close to them going in to record and write for the white album and you know i think it's i think it's a massively massively important thing to be talking about the general perception that i get is um Brian Epstein passing away, not only did it have a massive effect on the members of the Beatles emotionally, but it also kind of um, took the reins off them a little bit. Um, I think Mm. there were times from what I've read that uh, on their earlier albums, they might have tried to go into a bit more of an experimental odd direction with some of the stuff they were doing. And, you know, they were doing that to a degree with Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But when Epstein passed away, there was no one to kind of go, no, that's too far. You had George Mm. Martin, the producer, um, and some of his colleagues as well. Although I think I think George Martin's colleagues, they were very, very young. They were around 20, 21. I can't remember their names now, but they were very, very young. So I don't think they were going to tell the Beatles what to do and what not to do. And George Martin was getting... um, he was really busy with lots of other projects because he'd become very, very popular through working with the Beatles. But the Beatles, Beatles. But he was also um, just getting uh, a little, a little impatient, I think. Um, mm. And and I think there was a there was a sense of kind of like, all right, well, fine. If you want to do that weird backward looping thing for eight and a half minutes, then just do it. Um, and I'm not sure if that. I mean, I'm sure they would have recorded that stuff uh, under Brian Epstein, but I don't know if he would have sanctioned it being actually released. Yeah, well, the internal power struggle that ultimately leads to the fracturing nature probably can be traced back to around about this moment, particularly with the way in which people ended up feeling towards Paul McCartney, I would argue. Mm. Um, Paul McCartney being the person who was keen to kind of grab the reins the tightest, I think, in Mm. the aftermath of Epstein dying. Um, So Brian Epstein um, had just come out of rehab after acute insomnia had led to an addiction to amphetamines. His father had recently died... um, he was due to stay with some of his friends over the August bank holiday weekend, but having traveled down, he decided to return to his London home for one night at 5 PM on the 25th of August. Peter Brown, who was the band's personal assistant phoned Epstein and heard him sounding groggy on the phone. Brown told Epstein to catch a train rather than to drive back up to meet him. Epstein said he'd have something to eat, read his mail, watch jukebox jury on the television and then phone him back to see which train he should catch. He never called back and was found dead by his butler behind his locked bedroom door on the morning of the 27th of August. Um, He'd overdosed on something called Carbitral, which is a type of sleeping tablet. Um, The inquest actually found drug, the drug plus alcohol in his system. It was ruled as an as an accident. And I think there was there's um, a piece on the, the quite excellent Beatles 
uh, anthology that some of you may have seen back in the day. Mm. I actually owned on owned this on DVD. I lent it to you yeah. at the start of this year. Didn't yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So I watched um, I watched it um, at the beginning of 2020. Uh, rewatched mm. it, I should say, and it's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Kind of. Yeah. Oh, how long is it? Twelve hours. It's about fourteen hours long. Yeah, yeah. But it's mm. a really fantastic in-depth documentary on the Beatles, released in ninety-seven. Around ninety five, okay, yeah, yeah, mid nineties, mid nineties, and there's a lot of chat about, you know, uh, there was sort of some insinuation that there was foul play or that it was, you know, a suicide. There's a there's a bit with um, Paul McCartney where he's saying, "I don't, I don't think it was, no, you know, that that was just something people were doing at that time. They didn't really understand it." Jimmy, you know, Jimmy Hendrix, you know, goes into a lot of people from Keith Moon and who were just pushing themselves a little too hard with drugs and with alcohol and things they didn't quite understand. I think back in those days, people didn't really understand quite what those things could do if you abuse them to a, well, a large extent. At this point, I mean, it is a different drug entirely, but um, people like they had absolutely no idea about the um, dangers of LSD and how brain melting it could be. And, you know, certain members of the Beatles, particularly Lennon, I think is the general perception, were yeah. really mainlining LSD, like pretty much taking it every day almost yeah. uh, around this time as far as i'm aware so yeah um, there was a lot less kind of knowledge i mean let's not forget that i don't probably by this time people realized but you know not not too long before this time um we weren't aware how bad smoking was for us mm. you know um and that hadn't been kind of proved and there was a lot of like advertising around you know cigarettes and some some people were even saying it was good for you to smoke um so and i'm i I think by the late 60s that had probably that had probably that uh, had disappeared that um feeling and it had been proved wrong but it wouldn't have been long before the late 60s i don't think that it was sort of proved that it was bad for you so yeah yeah. the heartbreaking thing about all of this you know apart from the loss of life is the band didn't attend his funeral mainly for fears that um intrusion from the press of them going down to the funeral would be too upsetting and distracting for Brian Epstein's family. Now, can you imagine not being allowed to go to the funeral of someone who you were that close to, like incredibly close to? I mean, I guess in the last year, there'll be some people very, very sadly, you know exactly how that feels, but to Mm. not be able to attend because you know that you yourself will turn that funeral into a media circus must be a really difficult thing to come to terms with yeah um i mean i think it's uh i i you know i think it was a choice they they could probably could have cho- they could have chosen to just ignore that and go and and made it a big for car but i think it says a lot for the um personalities in that band that they chose not to out of respect to epstein's family mm. you know um it must be weird feeling that though yeah. You know, I would think like, what, what what have we become that we can't even go to a funeral of our friend, of our manager, this person who did so much to forward our career? It's oh yeah, it's it's awful. It's it's a really it's a it must have been a very very tough decision, um, but um, but I understand it, and um, it's uh, yeah, it's I I can't. I, I can. I was about to say I can't really imagine what it's like, but then uh, someone did pass away that I knew quite well uh, last year. But then at the same time, 
I, I understand the reasoning behind it. I think it was, pro I mean, at that point in time, it probably was a wise decision because like the Beatles couldn't, they just couldn't do anything. I mean, there's a massive mm -hmm. thing about them. They'd stopped touring by this point because yeah. it was just completely, pointless. complete madness and pointless. Mm -hmm. And you went and you couldn't hear the band anyway over people screaming, you know, so. Well, there's, there's that clip in the anthology that I watched again and John's been interviewed on the, like they're going back down to London from this seminar in Bangor with the, with the Maharishi and he's been interviewed. It's on the day and they're, you know, there's a guy sticking a microphone in his face and saying, oh, what does it mean to him? And I, I couldn't quite believe it. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that would just not be allowed to happen. As much as we talk about constant press, press intrusion into people's lives these days, it's got to be a good thing that, someone like John Lennon doesn't have to walk in the street and have somebody just stick a camera and a mic and he stands there and he just looks shocked. Mm. I mean, I think big stars like that are protected from something like that happening in this sort of instance. And I think that is a good thing because he looks like a ghost. The guy just asked him where, and the guy goes, where, where would you be without Brian Epstein? Mm. And John Lennon just goes, I don't know. Mm. Like he's in no fit state. He's, you can see he's got tears in his eyes and, you know, the guy's going to him like, oh, what did... He asked him what the Maharishi said to him about Epstein passing. And John Lennon said, he told us not to be overwhelmed by grief and whatever thoughts we had of Brian to keep them happy because any thoughts we have of him will travel to him wherever he, he is. Um, but do you know what I mean? Like, how can you... <laughs> Why are you asking somebody that? I don't, like, I don't want to sound like I'm defending um, the press because I'm, I'm not um but again just in terms of context um people uh having such a megalomaniacal kind of following was still this concept of celebrity i guess um mm. in the manner that it has manifested itself in the modern world was still a relatively new thing certainly in music i mean elvis presley was probably the first like absolute like hugely commercial star um you know you can argue little richard and stuff like that but then there was a lot of people at the time who said well they're not going to get really popular until you put a white face on it you know yeah um and so i think probably kind of rules and regulations around that kind of thing weren't in place because it still felt like a relatively new concept probably a little over 10 years old but it does take a while for those sorts of things to be put in place um yeah. I mean, so again, that that really isn't a defense of the people who did that. I'm just I, I'm just providing that for some kind of context. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, John Lennon has stated uh it's the aftermath of Epstein's passing where the band started to fall apart and yeah. like I say Paul McCartney is said to have made some kind of power grab for it. But um you know, I I do we'll probably get more into the the dynamics of how that sort of manifests itself a little bit later on but um before we go into talking about them heading out to india at the start of 1968 i suppose we should acknowledge as well is as one very integral figure from the beatles left one very integral outside part of the beatles kind of arrived as well uh yoko ono hmm. this is the white album the first album with contributions, collaborations, and the presence of Yoko Ono in the studio. 
Um, now, has anyone in history ever had more blame attached to them for the breakup of a band whilst not actually being in that band than Yoko Ono? I mean, obviously, that's a rhetorical question, isn't it, to be fair? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the uh, I mean, uh, Courtney Love springs to mind, but no, not as much, obviously. No. No, I mean, no, of course not. Um, no. <laughs> it's it's pretty insane mm. that you know that has become a word for a girl who breaks a band up or who comes in between for, like you're it's you're a yoke calling them calling them yoko um it's quite sad as well because like even yeah. on the surface you could surely um you could surely figure out that the death of your manager would have a lot more to do with it than you know your new girlfriend coming in and like contributing in the studio like sure what's interesting about it is going into this is that although there are and there are still some incredibly angry people on the internet regarding yoko ono's um sort of position within the beatles camp at this time the members of the beatles don't seem to be to have any kind of ill will towards her and they all seem to when you actually look at it they seem to accept it quite comfortably yeah um i'm wondering if again the circumstances surrounding what happened may have had something to do with it from an outside perspective i mean john lennon met yoko ono uh he gave her some handwritten lyrics to the song the word for a john cage book in 1966 and then went along to one of her conceptual art exhibitions later that year and was going to walk out before he saw a piece where you look through a magnifying glass to see a word on the ceiling and the word said yes and he was impressed that during a the kind of anti everything culture that was going on at the time he was impressed it was saying something positive so he decided to stay um thus began the correspondence between the two uh which increased to the point where Lennon's then wife Cynthia became suspicious of Ono constantly phoning their house. John Lennon tried to pass it off as um, her trying to get money for a, what he called a crappy avant-garde art or, or something like mm. that. And um, uh, at the start of the year, um, when Cynthia went on holiday without Lennon, Lennon invited Ono over to record that album that we were talking about, Two Virgins. Um, and when his wife returned, she found Yoko Ono wearing her bathrobe with John Lennon just saying, oh, hi as she walked in um lennon had earlier in their relationship already admitted to sleeping with thousands of women across the globe um obviously it gets pretty nasty here and i think there's that thing that people like to do where they say i hate john lennon and the lot of this stems from this little period i think mm-hmm. uh lennon filing a divorce suit against his wife suing her um, saying he was planning on getting sole custody of their son Julian, offering her the paltry sum of £75,000, mm. um, you know, saying that that was all she was worth and she should be happy because it would be like winning the football pools. Um, before her counter suing divorce, uh, after she found out that Yoko Ono was pregnant, um, the press's reaction to this particularly nasty tale really was to take Cynthia Lennon's side in a lot of it. Mm. And I think the you know, the the ill will and the ill feeling towards Yoko Ono really, I think, stems more from that particular part of the story as opposed to her sitting on Paul McCartney's amp. 
Yeah, it's a weird kind of odd misogyny, isn't it? Because, like, I mean, if if anything, um, I, I find it it's relatively difficult. I, I think there are there are thousands of people, but even thousands of people in in music who have like had affairs and like slept around. Like, probably yeah. more people have than haven't. Truthfully. Um, mm. But, uh, and I'm certainly not going to defend that kind of thing, but Yoko Ono is, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you can say totally innocent party in this, but of the two, it's, you know, it's Lennon's the one who was married. And, uh, mm. you know, like of the two, it's it's clear that like Lennon's at fault. But then, yeah, there is this kind of weird sort of intrinsic misogyny and in the fact that like, oh, well, it must be, you know, Yoko came along and stole Lennon from uh, Cynthia as, as if Lennon had no say in it, um, which I don't yeah. think is strictly true. Um, they no. actually uh, consummated their affair at uh, that house in Surrey on the 19th of May, 1968, whilst yeah. his wife was on holiday as well, because um, they'd been recording, uh, yeah, Unfinished Music number one, Two Virgins Before Making Love at Dawn, apparently. I have no, I mean, it's crazy that all of this information is so explicit and we know all that much, but then that's that's what happens when you're talking about the Beatles. I imagine one of them had a diary or something like that, but... Yeah. yeah, we know yeah, that well, we know the day they first had sex. Crazy, it's mad, isn't it? Yeah, I know yeah. it's mental, isn't it? Absolutely yeah. mental. I mean, on one hand, you know, Paul has said uh, and says in that documentary it encroached on our framework as a band, and there is that famous quote of him going, "Oh, you know, we didn't suddenly she was there," and you know, it was the first time that the band had to contend with someone outside of their inner circle of musicians and producers that they have in the studio with them just being there and you know and Paul said it was quite awkward going or oh, I just need to turn my amp up while she was kind of sat on it or whatever and he didn't really know what to say mm. but they have all since admitted that they did try and understand exactly what John was doing and when he told them how strongly he felt about Yoko they kind of did all they could to accommodate her I mean again in that anthology there's a bit where Ringo's saying you know I wasn't scared to ask John about stuff he says I asked John and he said that when you go home to Maureen she asks you, how's your day been? And you tell her two lines. Well, we know exactly how our day has gone. Mm. And they just wanted to spend all their time together. And that's I would also say just what they wanted to do. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming um, Yoko came in before Linda Eastman, later McCartney came in. But, you know, Linda, yep. Linda was hanging around the studio a fair bit as well. I've seen mm. shots. <laughs> I've seen photos of Linda. Um, in fact, uh, the... White Album Deluxe Edition, which um, which I own a copy of, has photos in the liner notes um, which are taken by Linda McCartney of them in the studio. So it's not as if, you know, there was like some rule where Lennon had his partner in the studio and no one else was allowed yeah. the, the partner to be in there, you know. So Yeah, well, you know, obviously it's just been passed down into music folklore now hasn't it it's no matter what we say or however we try and kind of go you know it, it, maybe it's been written slightly inaccurately <laughs> no one will ever stop saying those things unfortunately no. and it is a shame it is a shame but you know and you have already made this point but i do think it's worth um repeating i have never seen a member of the beatles show any animosity towards yoko ono mm. i've never seen it like 
um you know uh, they i i think it's massively massively overplayed that whole thing really massively yeah i do i i it must it surely is um so anyway so that was what was going on uh obviously again one of the most important things and something else which i i kind of did know was close to this but I mean, this is incredibly important. Um, the band headed to Rishikesh in India for a transcendental meditation training course at the ashram. An ashram is a kind of spiritual monastery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, yeah, of Mari, of the Maharishi Maharesh Yogi in February of 1968. It was here where the band began to write a great many of the songs that would end up being on the White Album. They were meant to go a little bit earlier but paul mccartney decided that he wanted the band to stay and promote the magical mystery tour after the death of brian epstein again a little bit of sort of um showing that paul mccartney was sort of trying to take the reins a little bit um he thought it would be the best course of action for the band to take care of their career at that time not the worst idea paul mccartney's Mm. ever had i wouldn't say it's things like a perfectly fine thing to do um Talking about why they wanted to go there, obviously a lot of this gets attributed to George Harrison, but I think they were all up for it, really. Um, well, it's Lennon, George Harris- Lennon and Harrison, really, isn't it? I think yeah, they, were, I they think, were the really enthusiastic ones. Yeah, but I think everyone's always going, oh, George Harrison was the one who, you know, he had a sitar, didn't he? Yeah, sure, he, sure, sure. It's like he's the, the one who loved India. Well, and, cer- and he cer- was. certainly a lot of those influences then crept into his music. So I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, but certainly, yeah, Lennon and and Harrison were very, were the most uh, enthusiastic. I think. Mm. So they went to go and see him, uh, the, the Maharishi in London, and Paul said, "We thought it made a lot of sense. With twenty minutes of meditation, you can improve the quality of your life and find a little bit of meaning." Um, George has said that Rishikesh is an incredible place at the foot of the Himalayas, and um, they were looking for. <laughs> there's a bit where he goes, "Go on, you can't go down Marks and Spencers and ask for a mantra." So they were like, "Go on, go on, give us a mantra." So you know, I, I think it's funny because you know, only a couple of years before john lennon was saying that people who followed religion were brain dead idiots i think there's a little bit of backlash to him you know suddenly going out and saying oh i can go to india and talk to this guy and he'll teach me about the the ways of the world and stuff and it was like well hold on i thought a moment ago you said anyone who was religious was an idiot and brain dead and all this stuff so i think again little bit of a backlash towards particularly towards john for the things that he had previously said in the past but um that all works itself out quite nicely. I mean, I, <laughs> I, get into this. I can't think of a single musician who's kind of um, backtracked on a lot of what they have said more um, than Lennon with all sorts of things. But having said that, just to qualify that statement, um, there's probably few musicians who have had as many eyes on um on them as Lennon and talking about, you know, backtracking what they say. And mm. when I say backtrack, I don't mean that as a, I, I don't mean it as a negative in a way. I mean, it as a positive because he was open enough to, um, uh, to have his opinion changed quite a lot. And he was also yeah. sort of bold enough to kind of go, well, you know, I don't have the answers to everything, but this is what I think. And this is what I feel at this present moment in time. Um, you know, I mean, another example of someone who did that fucking loads is Kurt Cobain. <laughs> Kurt Cobain mm. said loads of contradictory things throughout his life. Um, and Lennon did too, but I think it was just a, a reflection of him kind of being open and uh, to change, which 
I think is actually it's often a quality which is quite derided really it's like oh you can't stick by your principles and your you can't stick by what you really think but actually being open to uh, negotiation and change is a far better position to be in than sort of choosing a side and then sticking with it through thick and well, thin, I think. As we get into talking about their time in India, mm. it when new information comes to light that changes your opinion on it, there's nothing wrong with... You don't have to double down and go, no, 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 I've said that and I want to look right. Yes, quite. You just go, no, actually, I've changed my mind about this yeah. now yeah. and this new information that I didn't know before has come to me and which is essentially what john did isn't yes, it absolutely uh, in a very i think quite mature way we'll talk about that in a moment um john re- described uh the the place as like a recluse holiday camp paul said it was like a summer camp ringo star took two suitcases with him one was for clothes do you know what was in the other one renfrey you know this don't you um no go on baked beans he was allergic to so much of the food at the time um that he had to take tins of baked beans with him do you know eat. what i don't think i did know that that's you know, <laughs> that's great you know. uh i mean paul said they were eating vegetable curry for breakfast every day and this was before he was a vegetarian and said like a lot of weight dropped dropped off of him john has said we ate lousy food and wrote loads and loads of songs uh the days were dedicated to meditation lectures from the maharishi and each individual member of the band where they would have private sessions with him to work on their own individual wellness as well uh during the downtime there was quite a lot of downtime the band feeling relaxed and again you know the 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 troubled feeling of the white album that people talk about this kind of you know um stressful crumbling relationship that they had um is definitely not apparent at this point i think while they're actually sitting and composing what became a lot of the songs that went on this record it feels like while they're all there together they were having a lovely time yeah i think so i think that's the impression that i get as well um a lot of the songs for the white album were composed in india as well but i think it's Mm. worth bearing in mind that there was no electricity where they were staying and because of those restrictions they brought a couple of acoustic guitars with them um, just so that they could like continue to do music bits and pieces. But a lot of that kind of folky material that we hear on the White Album um, came from sessions where they were writing in India uh, as a result of the, the fact that they had technical limitations uh, mm. upon them. And I think that ends up being quite a good thing because when you compare it to like Sergeant Peppers is not an album that's known for being like subtle. There's a lot yeah. of like massive orchestration on that. And um, even going, I mean, I apologize if I'm skipping ahead here, but uh, even going to the the cover of uh, the white album and Sergeant Peppers, um, I read somewhere that the reason why it's just a stark white cover is because they wanted something totally, totally different from the mm-hmm. Sergeant Pepper cover, which had all these famous, yeah, everyone, everyone knows the Sergeant Pepper cover. I don't need to describe it. Uh, <laughs> but um Yes, uh, apparently songs like Blackbird, Mother Nature's Son, Dear Prudence, Happiness is a Warm Gum and uh, Julia all had their or- origins at the very, very least in India. And most of yeah. those are quite finger-pickery uh, acoustic stuff. From Donovan, the 60s folk singer, who taught yes. Paul and John the picking techniques that you yeah. can hear on many of those songs that you just uh, you just spoke about. Absolutely. Uh, 
when they first arrived, many of the party said the band in the party that they were, like I said, they were in a good place, uh, very close on the same page. A lot of people who were there um, alongside them said everything was was lovely. Uh, Donovan, the 60, aforementioned 60s folk singer, has gone on record to say that he felt that Paul was trying to be the boss of the band at that point. Um, right. In fact, when Paul brought up, you know, in a kind of, in a, a bit of tetchiness that did happen, is when Paul brought up the subject of a new album, he was shot down by George, who said that we're not here to write a new fucking album, we're here to meditate. I did read that, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, although... George has admitted that he wrote a bunch of songs while he was there. He said, I wrote a number of songs that I still haven't recorded to this day. So he's a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and Ringo, while he was out there, finally completed work on Don't Pass Me By, his first go at songwriting that he had been working on for five fucking years. Yeah. Come on, Ring. Come on, Ringo. <laughs> Come on, mate. I have to say, when we get to Don't Pass Me By, uh, there will be some talk about why the fuck did this take five years. I think we are being ever so slightly unfair there, just to clear something up ever so slightly, because what I read is he had the title for a song don't don't pass me by for five years i don't yeah. think like the song took five years to put together so i think that might be a bit of a kind of misnomer but it is quite well, I, funny to to say that it took him five years to write the song <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but that, the only reason why people say that is because i don't know from his diaries or something like that he had mentioned the title don't pass me by as a song he said that he he used to try and write. He just would go home to his mum's or something, sit in front of the piano and just smash the piano endlessly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you can hear on. You can't the, take uh, the drummer out of the drummer, can you? No, no, no. Um, but they were. I think you know. So even though George Harrison got a bit antsy at that point, I think they were all keen on writing and creating whilst they were just there. I mean, yeah. McCartney in particular. Uh, you know, as I said, very keen on writing, creating stuff while he was there, um, as well as annoying George with the amount of time he spent with the guitar in his hand rather than meditating. Um, he also liked, he wanted to kind of entertain the people that were uh, in the in the, the party with him. And he started writing a load of, I mean, they're kind of comedy songs that he started writing, like back in the USSR and Rocky Raccoon, songs which ended up on the right album. And you could argue prompted the famous line from... John Lennon that he didn't want to hear any more of Paul's um, grandma shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a kind of... Um, so a, a very easy way to distinguish kind of Lennon's writing and McCartney's writing. Like if there's a sort of jaunty um, melody and uh, mm. a melody that goes to lots of places. Let's take yesterday. Yesterday, so yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. You know, it goes up mm. many, many, many notes and it goes all over the scale. That's probably a McCartney song. If it's a bit more sort of serious and po-faced and the melody sits sits in a fewer, in a shorter space of notes, um, it's probably a Lennon song. Is the general rule, and that's a very, very general rule, but that's kind of how you distinguish the two. Yeah. um musically uh certainly yeah there are quite a few songs on the white album which could be considered sort of comedy-esque or um or throwaway maybe even uh what's the is it the continuing story of bungalow bill mm -hmm. uh you know would be like another example of that rocky raccoon as you've already mentioned um yes yes i think a lot of those were kind of 
written in this period, weren't they? Yeah, I think they were. Um, they didn't all. They might have turned up and been happy for a little bit, but um, they all left uh, at varying differing times. So Ringo left after ten days on the first of March. Probably yeah, he ran out of beans. Yeah, with all the beans that he ate. Um, mostly though, it was because his wife was scared of insects, and he missed his children. So I don't know if you know. Have you heard that when he said uh, he said to the Maharishi, "There's flies and stuff everywhere," and he said, "Well, when you are when you are meditating, you don't, you know, you 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 don't notice the flies." And he was like, "Yeah, but that's not gonna. They're not gonna go away. <laughs> like that won't zap them. Just me pretending that they're not like getting to a point where I don't notice them." So he was like, "No, nah, I'm not having this." But he still, on his arrival, he was predictably. Um, harangued at the airport and told reporters that he enjoyed the experience nonetheless he said the academy is a great place and i enjoyed it a lot i still meditate every day for half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening and i think i'm a better person for it if everyone in the world started meditating the world would be a much happier place uh mccartney and his then girlfriend jane asher left in mid-march which really pissed off both john lennon and george harrison um uh, both of them thought Ringo were unwilling uh, and McCartney were unwilling to really commit themselves to finding a higher consciousness. So again, as a little fracturous thing that starts to just chip away, I think that kind of annoyed uh, George and John that mm. Paul had just gone out. Oh. But Paul said that, you know, he had business to attend to. And I mean, we'll we'll talk about Apple a little bit, but not, not much to be mm. fair, because I just don't think it's that interesting. Um, but Paul was like, I only, I only intended to go out for a month and I thought that was going to be enough, um, which was seen as sort of flaky by the other two. So again, like the foundations just get a little wobble and a little bit of a crumble from that. Uh, Mia Farrow was there, the actress, mm -hmm. with her sister who inspired the song Dear Prudence. And the attention that she got from the Maharishi led to the departure of Lennon and Harrison and basically they're distancing from his practices. Uh, in the intervening years, Mia Farrow has spoken about how the treatment she received from him made her feel very uncomfortable. Special um, individual sessions with him. She, he made her a crown. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff that you can read into as to why she felt uncomfortable. So um, she did. She felt uncomfortable on the evening of the 11th into the 12th of April. Harrison Lennon sat up in the evening to discuss the behaviour of Maharishi and then in the morning they decided to leave. Now, there's, as you and I have discussed privately, Renfrey, we were talking about uh, the song Sexy Sadie mm. from uh, from the White Album, <clears throat> um, which Lennon wrote as a kind of response to, and a, a sort of frustrated response to the Maharishi's behaviour. And... I found an interview because we were saying we don't really know what happened. Well, this is an interview with John Lennon from 1970 from Rolling Stone. And he was asked if Sexy Sadie was about Maharishi. And he said, yes. Uh, and they said, the next question is, when when did you sort of notice you know how did how did you know that this sort of behavior was happening and john says this well i sort of saw it for myself yes there was a big hullabaloo about him trying to rape mia farrow or somebody and trying to get off with her and a few other women and things like that we went to see him after we 
uh, we went to see him after he stayed up all night discussing was it true was it not true when George started thinking it might be true I thought well it must be true because if George started thinking it it must be true there must be something in it so we went to see Maharishi the whole gang of us the next day charged down to his hut his bungalow his very rich looking bungalow in the mountains and as usual when the dirty work came I was the spokesman whenever the dirty work came I actually had to be the leader wherever the scene was when it came to the nitty gritty I had to do the speaking and I said we're leaving why he asked and all that shit and I said well if you're so cosmic you'll know why he was always intimidating and there was all these right hand men that were always intimidating that he did miracles sorry intimating he was always intimating and all these right hand men intimating that he did miracles and I just said you know why and he said I don't know why you must tell me and I just kept saying you ought to know and he gave me a look like I'll kill you you bastard and he gave me such a look I knew then I'd called his bluff and I was a bit rough to him sexy Sadie uh, originally had the lyrics Maharishi what have you done you made a fool of everyone and you little twat who do you think you are but Lennon changed the lyrics after Harrison pleaded with him that uh, it might be a little bit strong and a little bit too obvious as to who they were talking about <laughs> apparently he also goes on to say who the fuck do you think you are oh you cunt according to Mark Lewisian's The Complete Beatles recording sessions. I mean, I did, how, I did not know that. I don't know how accurate that is or not, but apparently it is. Um, mm. Yes, they also had to... They It was originally... Sorry, you might have already said this, but the song Sexy Sadie was originally titled Maharishi as well, wasn't Sexy it? Sexy Maharishi, yeah, it was going to yeah. be called, yeah. Um, and uh, they changed it because they were worried about a sort of lawsuit. Um, we should probably point out that this is all... Uh, it's an alleged sexual advance on Mia Farrow, just in case. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, nasty business. I don't know. I don't need to say anymore. Like, yeah, not not really. I mean, again, you know, it's something that people go, well, John Lennon was horrible to women. But, you know, I think he was obviously very, very, something happened there that he really, really didn't like. Now, you said something where you were like, well, it could be one rule for him and him seeing it as one rule for him and one rule for for other people. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I think... I, I think what I meant by that is like we're all a mass of contradictions, aren't we? Really, mm, and, I, yeah. and, I, and like I, I like I, I don't think anyone likes to think of themselves as being contradictory, but really we all are. Like yeah. if if we get down to the absolute base of it, um, and uh, I don't think um, the way that he conducted himself in India, speaking about Lenin, um, excuses stuff that he did later on but also what people often have a very black and white opinion on things which are very much more complicated than that and very much three-dimensional mm. um so uh yeah i'm not I'm, I'm certainly i'm i am sat firmly on the fence here i'm not coming down one way or the other but i think it's worth yeah it's definitely worth um bringing it up and kind of going look he isn't this monster that some people paint him at he was a very contradictory very kind of um uncertain fellow who was thrust into the limelight and every single fucking move he made was pried upon and kind of dissected and um judged which is something that 99 percent of us can't empathize with because Mm. we're not mega famous 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, When Lennon returned, he was keen to distance himself from Maharishi, saying on his Tonight Show appearance that he went on to promote the launch of Apple. uh, We believe in meditation, but not the Maharishi or his scene. We made a mistake. He's human like the rest of us. That is a great quote. That's a great quote. That is a great quote because he's admitting he's made a mistake and he's saying everybody's human. And I quite like the fact that John Lennon, as I said, a man who was decrying people for their religious beliefs and being religious zealots for a few, for a few years, calling them brain dead idiots, was in the first place open-minded enough to actually embrace something that he thought might have helped him as a person and then to change his mind when the facts revealed themselves to him. Mm-hmm. Now, people might think that makes him a hypocrite. I think it's somebody who makes him capable of growth and somebody who doesn't believe in dogmatic ideas. I think exactly. good for him really yeah. like you're you, you know you're right to say well you know that doesn't excuse him from this and that you're right but mm. we are all fallible as, as people and i think that is something that should always be remembered and so you know a lot of people in the public eye would not have the balls to go i messed up <laughs> and i made a mistake because that's that's really frowned upon and there there is this kind of um there's this idea that if you do that you're put into a we <coughs> are put into a weak position um, by kind of admitting that you were wrong. But I think the complete opposite in a way. I mean, if you're constantly fucking up and constantly, constantly wrong, then you should probably look into your kind of process a little bit. But if you can kind of um, acknowledge that you made a mistake publicly, I think that's a far braver thing to do than try and cover it up. You know? Yeah, me too. Uh, John says, we had a nice holiday in India and then we came back ready to play businessman. That's referring to the birth of Apple, the label, the company, the publishing house yeah. thing that they set up around the time. Something which just because of time and the fact that I don't actually find it that interesting, we're basically going to skip the sort of birth of Apple. I don't think we really need to speak about it too much unless there's anything you desperately want to say about it, Renfrey. I feel like we should probably very briefly talk about it. So they tried to form a company called Apple Corps, which um, was a real mishmash mess of all mm. sorts of things and very, very confused. Um, I, I think it's worth <laughs> talking about just because I think it was a massive part of the disillusion of the Beatles and yeah. they tried forming it after Brian Epstein uh, died didn't they so they were partly trying to do it as um holding on to managerial rights and holding on to copy, <laughs> copyright and all that sort of thing um but they also like went into all sorts of weird business ventures and got really dicked over didn't they and lost a shit load of money lost a load of money all went down the pan yeah. you know within a, a few months of you know if we get to doing abbey road then we'll be talking yeah. about the kind of disillusion of of apple and yeah. it all going down the pan and people would turn up with going oh, i want you know they said like, well, i don't want people to come here and beg for money that's not what we want people to do but ultimately a lot of chances turned up and said i'll oh, give us some money for this and they're probably too sort of idealistic yeah. as men yeah. to really run it in the correct way yeah. but anyway a- apple was a thing it was but uh, it, was, it was a thing that lost them a, an insane amount of money i mean not that i'm yeah. that kind of worried about them i think they're all right uh, all right but yeah. yeah yeah they put a lot of money into it and it was a big failure well that's how it's perceived at least mm. but the after effects of the beatles from their trip to india i think was quite far-reaching really i think that idea of transcendental meditation gives you more of a sort of a sense of individualism and i think you can definitely hear that on that record um there's also you know a bit of a backlash against paul's coddling supposed coddling of the group and there's also a little bit of 
uh, whether it was real or not George perceiving that they were like you idiot you made us go and see this guy and he's a bloody sex offender and you know again those foundations just start to crumble at sort of signaling the beginning of something bad happening do you know what i mean mm, mm, yeah 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 but saying that they wrote a lot of songs while they were out there uh, here's an entire list of songs that they wrote while they were out in india mm. apparently uh back in the ussr blackbird the continuing story of bungalow bill cry baby cry dear prudence don't pass me by everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey i will i'm so tired julia long 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 mother nature's song uh son obla de obla da revolution apparently um rocky raccoon sexy sadie i think they probably wrote that on the plane back um why don't we do it in the road wild honey pie your blues and also those are all songs from the white album and also mean mr mustard and polythene pam released on abbey road and other solo works child of nature which was reworked as jealous guy by john lennon mm-hmm. um circles uh cosmically conscious uh Harudin, um which is a george harrison song that he actually never released but played on the anthology do you remember that don't know if you remember that scene where they're talking about the songs they wrote and it's ringo and paul and george sat around and george was like oh i wrote this song and they go go on play it and they sort of make him try and it's like my god he wrote that 20 years ago and you're like (laughs) bullying him and he's never released it um junk look at me sour milk sea spiritual regeneration uh teddy boy and what's the new mary jane so there you go Mm. that is quite a lot of music that was written on that trip but they Um, were there to meditate not write fucking music (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) but yeah so i mean that's a that's a lot of it's a lot of stuff that they got done. I think it says a lot about how if you take people out of uh, a familiar environment, it can be inspiring. Um, and, you know, I, like you cannot talk about the White Album without talking about this trip to India. I think it has yeah. um, such a massive effect. Uh, have you done a little count? How many of the songs from the White Album were written? Uh, you named them all there, but I don't know how many it was. 19. There you go. So almost two thirds of the record was written in India. That's almost. pretty mad, isn't it? Yeah. That is pretty mad. Yeah. So um, we should probably, to kind of close this piece out, because we're not actually going to get into the actual songs themselves until part two, but we will talk about the production and recording of the record because... Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's quite a lot to talk about within Mm. that, Renfri. The band entered Abbey Road Studios on the 30th of May, 1968, and recorded until the 14th of October that year. They actually wrote and demoed far more than the 30 songs that ended up on the album. Uh, On the deluxe, Child of Nature is on the deluxe edition, which would become Jealous Guy, as I mentioned. Jealous Guy is obviously one of John Lennon's big, big, big solo songs, and it's quite good to hear that Mm -hmm. um, in its kind of infancy. But there's a lot of stuff on the 2018 deluxe edition that you can buy which you've got that i'm thinking about getting that on vinyl i nearly got that just before we started i didn't in the end so the the (laughs) third disc of my cd version uh is the escher demos the escher demos referring to the bung george harrison's bungalow um yes where basically um lennon mccartney and harrison sat around yeah just demoing the songs on harrison's four track and 
as a result of um, Harrison having a four track, they sound really good for demos. 90% of the time, 95% of the time, like demos of songs are just, of, of songs that you already know and love are just really not worth the time of day. Um, but you know these demos have like harmonies on them and they have um, they basically it almost almost acts as a acoustic stripped back version of the white album um, which is it which is really cool to hear and I think I don't think there's any there aren't any songs that I would absolutely point to and go well that's definitely a better version but I'm sure people could make arguments for saying mm. that is a either better version than what's on the original or certainly a version which is equal to um the original version and it's definitely very interesting to hear those Escher demos well it, it giles martin who is we will probably talk about in a little bit again uh, who's george martin's son, son mm. um he's described it as the beat was unplugged yeah pretty much it's like a kind of unplugged version of that record which i think is a great descriptor of it and, yeah and yes i mean you know when you take into account how what did we say like 19 of those songs were conceived on in probably on acoustic guitars exactly. in india yeah um hearing them demoed but you know double tracked and uh what is it i think there's 27 songs that they recorded on yes. the original Isha demos. Yes, in 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 only three or four days as well, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, they sound and they they do they sound really really good. Yeah. I mean, there are yeah, you're you're right. I think I'm not sure how many of them I would feel are like superior versions of the originals, but they're certainly the, the something like while my guitar gently weeps, obviously. Well, we'll talk about that in part two. But I love, I love the stripped back acoustic version of "Why My Guitar Gently Weeps." It's brilliant. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely brilliant. And you know, I've heard many different versions of that song. Again, in part two, we'll talk about the various covers of that song and the various different versions of that song. But I've never really heard anyone do it like that. And it's it, it, you can almost, and there are parts where you can hear them. I mean, there's a there's a version of is it from the is it probably isn't from the Isha demo, but Blackbird, um, the one where you can you can hear Paul McCartney does the vocal to Blackbird in about four different uh, ranges. He like hits different melodies in as the, you can almost hear him trying to work out exactly how he wants to hear the song as it's going on. It's really cool. Oh, right. I don't think that is the Usher demo, but um, that's interesting. It might, might not be, actually. But yeah, yeah. yeah, but there's, but yeah, there's, um, you know, there's some really cool stuff on that. Really, really cool stuff. It's, it's really, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really quite brilliantly put together. And I mean, I have to confess, I've had this um, Beatles White Album Deluxe Edition for, well, yeah, probably a couple of years. I think I bought it not long mm. after it came out. Um, and it came I, out in 2018, I think. Yeah. And yeah. um and I had never actually because my of my disdain for like demos like like well just just kind of like as as a bonus thing obviously demos are very important but you know as a bonus kind of item I never actually properly listened to the Escher demos disc yeah um uh and I listen and I listen to it and I I now kind of view it yeah like like a, an, an acoustic version of the White Album or an unplugged version of the White Album um. And it's something that I've gone back to a few times. 
um, whilst preparing for this. I think it's really, really cool. And, you know, nine times out of the 10, I'm, I'm going to, well, I'd say five times out of 10, maybe I'm going to put on the White Album properly. But there are going to be times where I'd much rather heard the Asher, the Asher versions um, mm. than the original. So, yeah, it's it's very cool. It's really, really good, those demos. Yeah, it is really good. And it's interesting. I mean, it, I'm just looking at it now and it's basically a lot of, you know, the first sort of, first sort of seven or eight is it's kind of yeah, it's not quite in in order but i mean you have got back in the ussr dear prince glass onion over d Dar, bungalow bill one we're going gently with all kind of as the first six and you know they're all really really different from the original as you can probably imagine the acoustic version of back in the ussr is really quite different to the version that you end up hearing on the record so certainly if you are a completist and i know many 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 of you will be um absolutely worth investing in that that's something which i don't own but i am going to get because this is the first time i'd listened to it when we came to do this so yeah really good yeah absolutely agreed yeah um we should probably talk uh i want to start by talking about ringo leaving so once they got chatting um once i got chatting once i got recording um and you know the the height of uh, uh paul mccartney's megalomania megalomaniac tendencies Mega, i guess megalomaniacal <laughs> megalomaniacal yeah that would yeah. be the one um Ringo just kind of got sick of it and left during uh recording of back in the USSR oh. after taking objection from McCartney's um criticism towards his drumming and he was sort of sick as well I think of what he called a passive aggressive attitude that John Lennon had at the time so he just decided to go on holiday with his family for two weeks um and due to the way that the White Album was being recorded which was quite bitty not only was there were their tension it was quite a bitty record you know there's a, a bitty amount of um people just kind of coming in and out and stuff was getting done in in, in different ways and um uh but so mccartney actually played drums on dear prudence and all three remaining members made a composite drum track to complete back in the ussr so ringo's not on that mm. um George Harrison said, one day we got this call saying Ringo's on holiday. Ringo himself has said, I wasn't playing great and I came to the decision that fuck it, I'm leaving. And so I went to see John, knocked on his door and said, I'm leaving because I'm not happy. I'm not playing great and you three are really close. And John said, you, I thought it was you three who are really close. And then he went over to Paul and said the same thing. And Paul McCartney said, oh, I thought it was you three who was really close. So everyone's feeling a little bit put out around this time um paul said we had to reassure him he felt insecure so he left and we had to go to him and say you're the best and that sorted it uh ringo said we were all in a bad place not just me i went to the studio and george's decked my drum kit out in flowers john sent me a telegram telling me that i was the best rock drummer and i felt good about myself and there was suddenly this feeling again uh like when we did your blues we went into a little room with no separation and just knocked it all out there was that feeling with the white album which is an odd thing to say I and mean, the reason why i wanted to start with ringo even though we kind of didn't leave right at the very very start is that ringo star will tell the story that the beatles white album was a joy to you know like that happened and then they were all united and it was a joy to make and he's gone on record by saying it's his favorite album and his favorite recording experience i think um well i think there's quite a <clears throat> lot of misconstrued 
like I think the White Album was the beginning of the disillusion of the Beatles. But then having said that, there's an awful lot of um, a lot of the technical staff who were involved with recording the White Album do are also at pains to point out that there was a lot of laughter and a lot of joy and a lot of fun in creating the records as well. Um, and they were they were still really close at this point. And I think there's a um, a narrative that is painted that like, you know, they were at each other's throats all the time and it was a really hard recording process and yada, yada, yada. I think there were times where it was, but you have to bear in mind as well that they were in the studio for how long? Three months? Yeah. Doing this record? I think there were... Uh, yeah it is like may no hold on june july august september no four 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 and a half four and a half months um you know so there are god which is yeah fucking hell a quarter of a quarter of a year uh, a third of a year sorry like you're there's gonna be times where it was stressful and hard and difficult and yeah you know ringo did leave for i think it was 11 days in total mm-hmm. um but you know there were loads of times where it was really happy and like certainly lots of things have been released on those anthology cds that they released to coincide with the documentary that suggested that there were they had a lot of fun and there were a lot of laughs there as well um the there's a perception that uh it's an album which had like Lennon songs, McCartney songs, Harrison songs and Star songs and they were all written in isolation from one another and I think that that's generally untrue. Mm. Um, You know, so there's... Yes, it it was the beginning of tensions within the band but this um, narrative that has been painted that, you know, they were uh, uh, at loggerheads all the time I think is total nonsense. Well, if you take a song like Julia, for example, Mm. which is the only... Um, I was going to say this in a second bit, but I'll say it now, is the only Beatles song performed by John Lennon on his own. Uh-huh. Right? So it's the only one. And, you know, the idea that, you know, John Lennon wrote that song and then recorded it on his own, you would think, ah, right, well, that's a really good telling indicator that, you know, he just wanted to put himself away from everyone else and that was that. And, you know, I'm sure people have gone, well, well, that's what happened because I've heard it and it's just, it's the only one with John on. He did it on his own, blah, blah, blah. Mm. When you get this deluxe edition, there's a demo version of Julia and at the end of it, you can hear Paul in the control room talking back through to John. Yeah. So he was obviously there in the studio with him while it was going on. So, I mean, yes, obviously, you can't deny that there was, I'm sure, certain tensions and there's been chat about the direction of the record and the things that certain members did want to do and things that certain members didn't want to do and people bringing their own songs in and people bringing their own people in and certain people Yoko Ono (laughs) being there as well George Martin not being as present as he might want it to be but you know I'm not I'm not sure that it tells the full story like again that life is just not as black and white as as yeah. that. And um, yeah, I mean... Especially when you have a recording period that lasts that long. Like four mm. and a half months is a really long time. Um, yeah. There are stories as well about like, whilst Lennon was in uh, Studio 2 working on this song, McCartney 
buggered off to studio three to do something else or or or, or was even in the in, for some songs they were they set up like drums in the corridor and stuff like that i think um of the of the studios um but you know which again i think kind of um has helped prolong that idea that it was all very fractured but again i think i think there were times when it was and times when it wasn't over four and a half months it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster well, um, well george harrison said this he said it was individual i remember having three studios all going on at once hmm. maybe they'd set a release date and we were running out of time so he doesn't even blame into band politics he's blaming a release date there he says there was a time where i was doing horns and john was in the other room doing overdubs yeah i mean that's not horns and overdubs are not i mean they are essential parts of, of this record obviously but if you're doing that at that point because you're working against the clock yeah i'm not sure that 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 says too much about the fact that you are incapable of being in the same room as each other and you hate each other no that's just, like you, just that's just using your resources to the best of, yeah, of like that's just that's just sensible you know yeah um and um yeah there are a few sort of orchestral accoutrements like horns and stuff like that i mean in comparison to sergeant pepper uh there aren't uh there, there, there aren't that many but there, there's still a good you know probably maybe even half a dozen songs with those kind of orchestral bits and pieces on them i would say yeah uh so yeah it just it just makes sense you know if um someone's done their part for i don't know uh obladi oblada you might as well do some horns on something else in a different studio and beatles seem to have more i, I don't know if it's fair to say they had the run of the studio but I, i've been fortunate enough to actually record at um uh, abbey road studios oh uh, yes and um they have i mean studio <clears throat> one is the massive massive room where they can put orchestras into it it's absolutely huge um as you can imagine because yeah you know that's where they record like i don't know the lord of the rings soundtrack for example was recorded in studio one in abbey road and they use that a few times i know that studio two is the main studio they would use which is pretty damn big it's got the piano in the corner where hey jude was composed and all that sort of thing i had a little tinker on that um and that's probably the studio that you will see most often um, when you see pictures of them, it's got the staircase that goes up to the control room, which is quite a famous mm -hmm. staircase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Studio Three is uh, the smallest of the studios, um, which I think they used a teeny bit, but not all that much. But yeah, there's a few, um, a few recordings of them in Studio Three as well. Mm. I mean, you know, th I think we should probably say that there has been obviously those murmurings of things going wrong. There are a few fairly famous stories from that. I mean, there's an unofficial biography that came out a few years ago about George Martin. Um, and uh, there was a sort of suggestion from that that he felt frozen out during the recording of the records and that he had a fairly frosty relationship with the album. Now, I think he has come out and said a few things in regards to the album um but there's a thing that says that by all accounts there was a cold war between the band and george martin that led him to sit on in recording sessions with a stack of newspapers and a massive bar of chocolate nice work if you can get it <laughs> now as i said some of um some of this by all accounts came from a time magazine article that gave george martin a huge degree of credit for the sound of sergeant pepper's um, which the band didn't like. Uh, in the aftermath of the Beatles split, John Lennon was pretty angry and he said some 
pretty horrible things about just about everybody that had anything to do with the Beatles around that time. But there was a quote from him where he sarcastically said he'd love to hear Martin's music. Play me some. I'd love to hear it. Hmm. When they talked about what George Martin did for the band, uh, he completely just chucked him under the bus. And I think the idea that, you know, he's this Svengali savant guru behind the sound that they were making. Again, that it pr- it may not have been something which turned it into a cold war like this you know this this book claims but it might have bugged them a little bit we don't really know all we do know is that you know obla di obla da uh there was a big old blowout mm. by all accounts mm. and that i think kind of is true so george martin is said to have raised his voice for the, pretty much the first time in their entire working relationship um paul mccartney who you know that we'll talk about the amount of takes that they needed to be made on the amount of demos they are 28 30 40 different takes of different songs even more than that in some cases yeah in it, some it cases it gets yeah, close like, to 100 for some yeah insane amount of takes they did for certain songs um martin said to paul mccartney you know have you tried doing this and paul mccartney said you know why don't you come down and sing it yourself um mm. and george martin blew up and shouted then bloody sing it again i give up i just don't know how to help any of you uh which left to studio engineer jeff emmerich quitting the sessions yeah. that day yeah, yeah, yeah um as again you know like this is a lot of kind of hearsay and suggestions and you know uh but um i do have a very interesting in, in the um uh white album deluxe edition there's a really great essay by giles martin george martin's yeah. son um which at this point is probably just uh, just read the first two paragraphs because i think it um puts a little more of this into perspective and you were sort of saying some of this is hearsay and stuff like that i think this clears up bits and pieces of it a little bit um mm-hmm. and it also brings in uh, you know brian epstein's death as well which i think is obviously you know they probably were feeling an awful lot of pressure and a, a lot of you have to bear in mind that this is a guy who really had guided their career up to this point yeah. and suddenly he was gone so in giles martin's introduction he says the way i see it the tragic death of manager brian epstein on 27th of august 1967 triggered the opportunity for the beatles to make a record like the white album Suddenly, the man who had held the reins and guided their career was gone. Significantly, my father, George Martin, no longer had an equal in the Beatles camp with whom he could devise strategies for album content and single releases. Whenever anyone mentioned to my dad that the White Album was their favourite Beatles record, he would grimace. Not because he disliked the album, it was more due to the fact that the recording sessions for it had been so different to previous Beatles albums. In 1968, he lost the classroom. The concise preparation and tightly organised process of recording for Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1967 had disappeared. Song development in the studio and experimentation through multiple takes became customary. It was impossible for him to keep up with the relentless drive and prolific output of the Beatles. It required punishingly long hours, sometimes in different studios at the same time with various members of the group. Fortunately, my father had been astute enough to employ a young assistant producer, the now legendary Chris Thomas, Thomas to help steer the ship. So there's a lot mm. of kind of um, giving, uh, yeah, there's a lot of him sort of giving up control and sort of being forced to because of the situation that was happening. And um, I think that, that, <laughs> that, I mean, I said to you, didn't I, the, the thing about him grimacing when he hears people say the White Album is their favourite. You know, yeah. I, think, I think it does say something. I don't think... 
you know, again, some people would probably lead that and conclude that, oh, George Martin hates the White Album. I don't think that's true at all. I just think it reminds him of a time that was that was um, sometimes very difficult. Not always, mm. but sometimes yeah. it was a trying time in the studio. Well, actually, I've got a quote from Giles Martin as well, which I, I think is is quite interesting, which he says, the revealing thing for me is when you go back and listen to the tapes and what we have on the tapes is a cohesive unit playing together and working on songs together. Listen to the sessions. They were very warm. And that's a surprising thing. I th- I think we thought the White Album was this disparate, angry record, and it certainly has elements of that. But in essence, the four of them made an album together that they wanted to make. Um, yeah, that's, what, he also that's said of his, the same essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he also says of his father's work on the album, they didn't want an architect. They wanted to build an album from the bricks up without any real idea about what it was going to be. They indulged themselves because they, because they knew that each member of the band would make that song better. So again, you know, it's sort of saying... They didn't not want George Martin there. They didn't want him to not contribute. They just were working in a different way, an unusual way, an unfamiliar way, a way yeah. that, you know, the, the the relationship up until that point hadn't worked. Um, yeah. And I also, think that's the end of the world. Not at all. And also they were probably trying to figure that stuff out after the death of Epstein as well, because, mm. you know, I think um, as, as Giles Martin pointed out at the beginning of that introduction, he kind of held the reins and um, yeah. he, he was responsible for them kind of asking them to pull back when it was necessary. And there's very little kind of, there's very little indication of the Beatles pulling back on this record at all. We're talking about a 30 song double album. Um, mm. There's some, you know, when we get into it in part two, there's some really weird experimental stuff, which even today just doesn't like, it's odd. And, you know, I don't, I, I I'm I very much doubt this is speculation, of course, but I very much doubt we would have got a double album from the Beatles if Epstein had still been alive. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean that is that is absolutely were, speculation, but yeah, of course. Know. I mean, there were forty different musicians that played on the White Album overall. Uh, yeah, forty musicians. Yeah, you've got George Harrison who says there was a lot of egos, and maybe some of those songs should have been B sides. I mean, sometimes I think even the people involved in it are like, maybe we didn't quite do the right thing. Um, George Martin has said they would record and then have a jam session to end it. I think they should have made it a very good album. I think they should have made it a very good album rather than a good double album. I think it could have been condensed. A lot of people think it's their best album. I do not. Horses for courses. So I think there's certainly... Like, well, we know how Brian, uh, sorry, how George Martin feels about it. George, even George Harrison has kind of admitted, like, maybe it shouldn't have been this. Um, I'm sure John Lennon would like to, would have liked to have taken quite a few things off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Ringo likes it. Uh, I think, you know, Paul likes it as well. Um, on the anthology documentary, Paul says, he sort of he sort of sums up how I feel about a lot of these criticisms. Uh, I'm not one for that. It's the Beatles' White Album. Shut up. <laughs> is, what he, is what he says, and I, I, that, I, that's kind of how I feel. Like you know, I I like the fact that this is the most contradictory, difficult album that they've made. Like that's that's why I like it. Mm. You know, mm. Mm. Um, I wouldn't really want to. 
even the stuff that I don't really like on it, I didn't wouldn't really want to take out. And all the kind of the the tensions and the the singularity and the the bits where they had to kind of come together. I think all of that is what makes this record interesting. Yeah, it's certainly um I mean, I discussed this with you on the phone the other day. Like, there are songs on it which, if you take them individually and take them out of the context of the record, like, they're nothing, really. They're just dumb and really stupid and avant-garde. But I think it says a lot of this record. Um, The sequencing of the album really, really makes it, I think. Uh, The fact that it hangs together so well is really down exclusively, I think, to the sequencing uh, skills of Lennon McCartney and George Martin. Um, they spent a continuous 24 hour session on sequencing the record between the 16th and 17th of October 1968, the mm. single longest session the Beatles ever undertook. And <laughs> I think that says, I think that says it all um, in terms of, you know, um, I think, I think putting those 24 hours into that sequencing is what makes the record work because it's so disparate and there's so many different things going on on it and they even kind of in those 24 hours they even sort of recorded little segues to make things work and so on and so forth and they presented it in a really expert way where you know We'll get into it specifically, and I know you have disagreements against this, but a song like Wild Honey Pie, isolated and taken on its own, is not something that I ever need to hear. But in the, <laughs> but, in, but in the context of the record, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to skip it. It's, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not going to skip that because it, it would feel wrong to do that, you know? Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Although there is um, one song that I'd skip on this record all the time, but we'll get into that another time. <laughs> yeah, well, we will get into that very, very, very soon. The last thing I will say on it is um, John Lennon wanted Revolution to be a single yeah. because he said, I wanted to say something about what was going on at the time. And they said, no, it's too slow. So more tension. And that was something that ended up causing some some serious tension, as we will discuss in part two. Uh, that ended up being a... A, a b-side to uh to hey jude that song do you want um, to jump in? not not the version that uh that ended up being on the white album um mm. so it's revolution revolution one and revolution nine. Oh, all the revolutions get really confusing um but yeah do, we'll, we'll try and figure that out as we go in the next yeah one. but anyway i mean that is the context of the white album i mean it's so much that i feel like we've even kind of skipped over a few little things that we could i mean we did we barely spoke about apple we could have probably spoken about that for 20 minutes and we just thought no let's not um and we've not even spoken individually about those songs yet so what we're going to do now is we're going to head over to our patreon page for part two where we will actually talk about those songs imagine that talking about the actual songs on the record room for <laughs> mental isn't it we have managed to talk about two hours without actually really talking about actually any of the music uh head over to patreon.com forward slash right act podcast and you can sign up as i said for five pound a month you will get access to all of our classic album series podcasts and our rioters reviews 
In the second part of this special, we'll be looking at the songs on the album individually, the release of the record, the reaction to the record at the time, the cultural impact it had, and discussing some of the artists that have gone on to cover songs from the White Album. This is your trigger warning, contains spine shank. We'll see you over there. Thanks very much for listening and uh, see you on the flip side. This would be side side C, right? Yeah, it would yeah. be side C. Yeah, yeah. On a double album. See you.